Okay. All right. We are going to continue our series, Sexuality, Marriage, and the Bible. And we are on our lesson called The Sexual Crisis. Um, last week we saw what that was, and we realized that, in essence, it's really not a sexual crisis. It's a sin crisis. Um, and that's a good thing. And uh, I told the class earlier, it's kind of unusual to hear somebody, especially at church, say that a sin thing is a good thing. But the reason for that is, if the issue is sin, there's an answer and a cure for that. If it, in this case, for example, is genetic, there is no cure for that. So, we want it to be a sin issue, and whether we want it to be or not, it is, according to what God says. Now, we don't have time to go through all that. We looked last week at the fact of original sin. We're all born with that. We all battle that. And by the way, we will battle that until the day we get to heaven and our lives are completely changed, our bodies, so that we have no more sin nature. At that point, you and I will not have to worry about sin anymore. But until that point, we still struggle with it. We'll talk a little bit about that this morning. So last week, we defined what the crisis was. It's a sin crisis. It's not a sexual crisis. Today, we're going to look at two other things. Number two, what is the solution to that sin problem? And then number three, how does a Christian act or respond or treat another person who is involved in any of these things? Now, we are answering the question, why are we Christians so hard on homosexuals? But I think we've already seen that homosexuality is just a sin like any other sin. And it just happens to be involved in the sexual drive that God gave man and the misuse of it. But that can happen in many forms. So homosexuality is not the only form of sexual immorality. Morality and immorality are very simple terms. To be moral just means I do what's right. To be immoral means I do what's wrong. That's the simple definition. Now, we saw in our very first lesson God's view of right and wrong. And the Bible is our standard of right and wrong as a believer. God tells us what's right. God tells us what's wrong. In Hebrews chapter 13, God tells us what's right and what's wrong in the realm of sexuality. In Hebrews 13, verse 4, the Bible says, Marriage is to be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. But adulterers and the sexually immoral, God will judge. So, it's real simple. God gave human beings a sexual drive. What is the moral way to use that? A man and his wife in marriage. That's the right way to do it. That's the moral way to do it. That's God's way to do it. And God says everything else is sexually immoral. What's immorality? Doing what's wrong. So everything else is wrong. The issue we're dealing with is for some reason as human beings we think that lesbianism or homosexuality or bisexuality or transsexuality or cross-dressing, we think that for some reason... All of these are worse than heterosexuals doing it not married. When the truth is, 
it's all sexually immoral, according to God's Word. So, what is the solution to that? And how, as Christians, do we deal with that? Do we deal with that judgmentally, critically, hatefully? How do you deal with that? And that's what we want to look at today, okay? So, let's look, first of all, at the solution. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, look with me at verse number 9. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, Paul is writing to the believers in the church at Corinth. And that all sounds terrible. These kind of people don't inherit the kingdom of God. Well, who does inherit the kingdom of God? Basically, those who have been saved, who have been washed in the blood of Christ and made whole through Christ and His sacrifice. That's why these things won't be in heaven. It doesn't mean people who have been guilty in their life of these things won't be there. It means these sins won't be in heaven. And people who by nature are like this and never get changed, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to look at verse number 11, because this is the key to what we're going to talk about today. And that is what some of you were. Now, I want you to look back at verse 10. Nor thieves. You ever stole anything? If you ever took a pen from your work, home, to use personally, and your work paid for it, you are a thief. In the very strictest sense of the term, you are a thief. You didn't pay for that. It didn't belong to you. It belonged to your job. Now, we're being real picky right here, but we need to be. Let's keep going. That, that, that's, that, that's kind of a hard one. Let, let's read the next one, and then this will pretty much cover everybody. Nor the greedy. Well, here we all are. You ever been greedy? You know what greed is? Wanting something somebody else has. You ever been that way? It's also called covetousness. It's also defined, the word covetous in the New Testament is defined wanting more. We have all been there. What is God doing? God is pointing out we're all sinners. The act that manifests our nature is not the main issue. It's the nature that's the main issue. Notice what else he says. Um, nor drunkards, nor slanderers. Can't see anything nice, don't see anything at all. I've been guilty of that. Nor swindlers. That's cheating people. We talked about it last week. You sold your used car. You knew the alternator was about to blow up. The car runs great. Probably go another 100,000 miles. If you replace the alternator and the transmission and the steering drive and the drive train and the tire. But you didn't tell them that, right? That's called swindling. Okay? Point. We're all sinners. We're all sinners. But you know what we do? I want you to look at verse 9. Because we read verse 9 most of the time and stop. 
Verse 9 is where it says that the wicked don't inherit the kingdom of God. And then he begins the list. Sexually immoral, adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexual offenders, and then we want to stop. For some reason, we think those sins are bigger and badder than the ones in verse 10. According to God, they're all big and they're all bad. And we're all guilty. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The truth is we're all in this together. Without the mercy and grace of God, we are all headed for an eternity separated from God in a place called hell. And it doesn't matter what sin I've committed. That is what I am by nature. Now, there's hope. Verse 11, Paul says, And some of you were like this. You know the greatest word in that whole passage? In verse 11, were. You know what that means? That means I don't have to stay that way. These people didn't stay that way. They were like that. The implication is, but they are no longer. What happened to them? Now, as we look at these next things, because this is the solution to the problem, whether it's thievery or slandering or cheating or swindling or homosexuality or living together and having sex before you get married or lying, whatever the sin is, these three things are the answer to it. What is important is the answer to the sin problem, not the outward manifestation of what the sin is. So I want you to notice, this is what happens. This is what changes us. All right, let's look at these three things. Here's the solution, verse 11. And that's what some of you were, but, number one, you were washed. What does that mean? The word there is the word that means you were made pure or you were made clean. What does sin do? Sin makes us dirty. What does the blood of Christ do? It washes us white as snow. It washes away our sin. I am clean. No unclean thing gets into heaven. But I don't have to worry about that. Because of faith in Christ, I am now clean. I want you to take your Bible. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Let me show you this real quick. Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 1. Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, he says this, Ephesians 2.1, As for you, you were, there's that word again, wonderful word in the Bible, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. What does that mean? That means you had no spiritual life. How is that manifested? I don't understand God. I don't understand the Bible. I don't understand Christians. I don't know why they do what they do. I don't, want, I don't know why they believe what they believe. I don't know why they live the way they live. I don't understand that. I don't, a lot of times it's put like this. I just don't see it. I just don't see it. Why? 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4. The Bible says, But the God of this world has blinded the minds of them that do not believe, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine to them. Do you know why they don't see it? Because they can't. They're blinded. Remember what we learned last week in 1 Corinthians? The Bible says that the unsaved person does not 
want to know anything about the things of God, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually understood. He can't understand them. So Satan has blinded their mind. He's kept the spiritual truth from them so they can't understand it. That's why they are the way they were. And Paul says, all of us were like that too. Every one of us. Verse 1, as for you, you were dead in your transgression and sin. We were all like that at one time in our life before we got saved. Then he says, and he says, this is how this manifests itself. Here's how you live. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. Now, why would you do that? And of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Who is behind all of this disobedience to God? Who is the God of this world? Somebody tell me. Satan is. And he said, Paul says right here, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. He is the prince of the power of the air. He is the spiritual wickedness in high places that we battle. And the Bible says he is the God of this world. That's why the ways of this world, he controls them. Have you ever had somebody justify what they were doing by saying, well, everybody's doing it? That's not a good indicator for a Christian. Satan is the one who controls what everybody is doing in general. The ways of the world. How big is the world? That's a big place. Why would anything be characterized by this is the way the world does it? Because it's probably the way most of the people living in the world do it. As a Christian, if Satan is the one controlling all that, I don't want to do that. I don't want to live that way. But Paul says, before I got saved, this is how I live. And I will testify, that's exactly how I live. Now here's another characteristic that helps us better understand it. Verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time. Here it is again, we all lived this way at one time in our life. What did we do? Gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Worldly definition of that philosophy, if it feels good, do it. That's exactly what that verse means. If it feels good, do it. If I like it and I crave it in my flesh, why not go ahead and do it? It must be okay because it is a a desire that I have, and if I desire it, then it must be okay. What if I desired to shoot you? Would it be okay for me to shoot you? Of course not. Have you ever felt like killing somebody? You ever been so mad? Now, I know most of you probably never really thought that, but you said it. I'm going to kill him. By the way, don't ever say that in front of an attorney if you're a suspect, because you will get convicted for that. You will. Just watch Judge Judy. She does it all the time. I'm just being funny with you. But you know what I'm saying. The truth of the matter is, we all are guilty and we all have sinful desires. That's why Paul says in the book of Galatians, the flesh and the spirit fight each other. 
Just because we became Christians didn't mean those sinful desires disappeared. They're still there. They're there in the form of the sin nature. That's why a person who's not saved, that's all they can do. That's why that's what characterizes them. They don't have the Holy Spirit to convict them and show them that it's wrong and create guilt so that they change. So that's why you're going to talk to somebody involved in these things and they're going to say, I just don't see it. I don't agree with you. I don't understand. I don't think it's wrong. Don't be shocked. That's normal. Okay? Now, I want you to look with me um, at verse 4. This is the key to how we ought to act. And we're going to get to that in a second, but I want you to see it right here. In verse number 4 of Ephesians 2, the Bible says, But all of these things, this is how we live before we got saved. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgression, it is by grace you have been saved. Why did I live like that before I got saved? Because I was blind. I didn't see it. I didn't get it. And I was slowly following the devil down a path in my life that would ultimately destroy me. Why did I stop? Three things. Number one, because of God's great love for me. Number two, because of His rich mercy. You know what mercy is? God not giving me what I deserve. And number three, because of His ability through Christ to make me alive. He opened my eyes. Who did all that? God did. You have a friend who is involved in sexual immorality of some form. It may be homosexuality. It may be some other form. What is the solution? They have to be washed. They're not going to be washed until God does transformation. That's regeneration of the heart. Only God can do that. How does He do it? Same way He did it to us. Through His great love and His rich mercy in Jesus Christ. So how do I approach somebody? And I'm going to give you a little hint of what we're about to talk about. If you're involved in homosexuality, how do I help you? You may not even think, and you probably don't think, you even need help. First of all, I'm just as in much trouble as you are. I need it as bad as you do. But I'm going to tell you two things that have to be present or it don't happen. The love and mercy of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Without that, it don't happen. I can't control the power of the Holy Spirit and I can't regenerate a heart. But I can certainly love somebody and I can certainly show them mercy. We'll talk more about that in a second, okay? Go back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First of all, what's the solution? We need Christ that washes us from our sin, makes us clean. Number two, you were washed, you were 
sanctified. What's this mean? This is the word that means set apart. Literally set apart from sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 21. And we don't have time to read that, but that's the passage that talks about 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that if we are in Christ, we are a new creation. Old things are passing away. All things are becoming new. He is making us into a new person. What does this mean? This means that we have the ability with Christ to overcome our sin. We can have victory. Paul said in the book of Romans, sin does not have to be our ruler. It does not have to control our life. We can have victory. Now, sanctification involves three things. Number one, we're set apart, which is what the word sanctified means, from sin. First of all, we're set apart from the penalty of our sin. That means that once we receive Christ, He takes my penalty and I have a home in heaven, an inheritance, according to Peter in 1 Peter 1, that is reserved for me that cannot be taken away. I don't have to die and go to hell and pay for my own sin, basically. Christ did that for me. So I am being set apart from the penalty of my sin. I don't have to worry about that anymore. Number two, I'm being set apart from the power of sin over my life every day. Galatians 5, the flesh and the spirit battle. I can have victory if I yield Romans 6 to the Spirit of God. So I can't have victory over sin. Do I always have victory? Of course not. I'm human. I lose some of those battles. I give in to the wrong things. We all do. But we get back up and we keep fighting the battle. Then number three, one day we're going to be completely set apart from the very presence of sin. 1 John 3 and verse 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, but it does not yet appear what we shall be. For we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 51 and going down through verse 58, the Bible talks about this corrupted body will put on an incorrupted body that will no longer sin. Do you know there is coming a day when you and I will never have to battle sin again? Ever. You'll never have another sinful thought. You'll never commit another sinful act. You'll never be around another sinful person. But that day doesn't take place till we get to heaven. That's when we are completely set apart from the presence of sin. Until that time, we've got to battle the power of sin in our life. That's what sanctification is. Paul said to these people in 1 Corinthians 6, You used to be like this, but here's what happened to you. You got washed. You were made clean. You got sanctified. Now you have the ability to overcome your sin. And then number three, you were justified. That's a legal term. That's a Judge Judy term. You know what that means? You're not guilty anymore. It doesn't matter what you've done. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ. Do you know you're not guilty? Now, listen to me. We're not guilty, not because we're not guilty. Because we are guilty. We have been pardoned. That means we have been forgiven. God no longer holds us legally accountable for our disobedience to His law. I'm not guilty. I deserve to be guilty. But I'm not. Have you ever felt guilty about something? You ever do something and then constantly look over your shoulder wondering if somebody was ever going to find out? Because you knew if they did, it wouldn't be good. 
That's guilt. Do you live your Christian life wondering if God likes you? Or if God loves you? Because you did something wrong? And you're afraid He's mad at you? Because you did it? You've asked Him to forgive you for it a thousand times, but you still feel guilty. Do you know how you apply justification? The same way you apply salvation. The same way you apply sanctification. You do it by faith. If God has forgiven you, and He has if you ask for it, then you are not guilty. Don't live with guilt. Paul said, forgetting the things which are behind, I reach forward to the things that are before me. The only thing your past can do is hurt your future by robbing you with guilt. But God never intended for that to happen. That's what justification is. Forgiven. We're pardoned. Okay. So what is the answer to this sin problem? However it manifests itself. It's Christ. In Christ, we're washed. We're made clean. We're sanctified. We can have power over sin in our life. And we're justified. We're not guilty anymore. But Bill, you just don't know how I live. You don't know what I've been doing. Had somebody come to me long ago and said, there are these two guys and they've both gotten saved and they're in a homosexual relationship and they don't know what to do. And they feel guilty. You know, the moment you get washed and the moment you get sanctified and the moment you get justified, you begin to battle what you know now as sin to overcome it and you don't have to feel guilty anymore. It doesn't matter what you've done. God's grace and God's mercy is powerful enough to take the guilt away from anything, not just the little stuff. Anything. If there's any sin God cannot forgive, then we're all in trouble. Because if there's one He can't forgive, He can't forgive any of them. But He forgives them all. Somebody said, what about the unpardonable sin? You know what the unpardonable sin is? Rejecting Jesus Christ. Which means you don't want forgiveness anyway. Everything else He forgives. Now, with that being said, that's the solution. There's only one person that can create that solution. And that's God Himself. You and I can't. So what do we do? How do we approach people in our lives that are involved in, for our purpose, sexual immorality, the sexual crisis? How do we deal with those people? How should we... Treat them. Okay, let me give you three things real quick. Number one, first of all, we treat them with, by personally being pure ourselves. You don't help people by being involved in what they're involved in. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, look at verse 12. Everything is permissible for me, but everything is not beneficial. We were talking about, um, next week we are going to talk about polygamy what the Bible says about that. And somebody asks, well, how come we can't have more than one wife? Well, you can if you want to. Everything's permissible. I mean, nobody's going to take a gun to your head. Go ahead. However, you're going to have some major emotional problems. You're going to have a few legal problems. I mean, there's going to be some issues. There's consequences to everything. Everything is permissible. Now, in this passage... Paul is actually saying there are some things spiritually that God says are okay to do. 
However, they're not beneficial, Paul says, for my main purpose of helping other people. So if it's not going to help me help others, I'm not going to do it. It's not beneficial to me. Yeah, do I have a right? Sure, I have a right. I have a right to do whatever I want to do. But life is not about me. It's about others. And so Paul says here, here's what I've got to do. Verse 13, food for the stomach, the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. All that means is everything physical one day will be changed or destroyed. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. You can't be any more plain. There's no hidden Greek meaning. God didn't make my body for sexual immorality. To take what He meant to be good inside of marriage and use it to do something that's not right. But for the Lord. And the Lord was made for the body. By His power, God raised the Lord from the dead and He will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the member of Christ and unite it with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it said the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Everybody's going to be tempted by this, by the way, at some point in your life. And please don't ever say, not me. Those are music to the devil's ears. You don't want to do that. Because the moment you say not me, he's going to make sure it's me. Don't do that. Everybody is going to be confronted with this in some form. What's the answer? Run. Flee from sexual immorality. The Joseph principle. Potiphar's wife tempted him. He didn't stand around and negotiate. He ran. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, verse 18. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God? You are not your own. You're bought with a price. Last verse. Therefore, honor God with your body. Now, may I say this? There are a lot of things that we battle in life. Paul is dealing with one specific thing. The ultimate answer is Christ. However it manifests itself in our life, Paul is dealing with the sexual crisis issue. There's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. And Paul says, if you do this thing wrong, you're dishonoring your body. The body was made for the Lord, so honor God with your body. So, first of all, how do I help other people? By first of all, being personally pure myself. Second of all, by being passionate about the people. Um, take your Bible. Turn with me real quick to Matthew chapter 9. I want you to see this. And, and if you don't remember anything else we talk about today, Matthew chapter 9 is what I want you to remember. This is the key to everything we're talking about today. Matthew chapter 9. And look with me at verse number 9. This is where Jesus calls Matthew to be one of his disciples. And he says this, Matthew 9, verse 9, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, everybody knows now who Matthew is, right? He's a tax collector. One of the most loved and respected people in all of Judaism, right? 
I mean, they must have loved him. Oh, Matthew, it's so great to see you again today and give you three-fourths of my income that I worked so hard for. For a Roman government that hates us. We just love you. Were tax collectors loved people by the Jews? No. These are the people that the Jewish people said, I'm going to kill that guy. No, they didn't like these people. When Jesus walked up to Matthew, his disciples were probably thinking, what are you doing? If I walk up and put my arm around a man involved in homosexuality, a lot of Christians would say, what are you doing? The same thing Jesus did. Same thing. Notice what he said. Follow me, he told him. Now, when I put my arm around that guy, you know what I'm going to say? I love you. Can I tell you about Jesus? Basically, will you come follow Jesus with me? Everybody's not going to say yes. But you know what Matthew did? You never know if you don't ask. Jesus said, follow me. The Bible says that Matthew got up and followed him. What do you know? He listened. You never know unless you ask. Then notice what Jesus did. Verse 10. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. Oh, my word. Now he's in the guy's house eating dinner. Many tax collectors and sinners. See, we like that word. Because there's an answer to that. Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Now, let me ask you a question. Here's Jesus in the house of a tax collector who he just said, come follow me. And by the way, he's following him. He left and went to Matthew's house to eat. By the way, let me ask you a question. Do you think Matthew, between the tax collector's booth and his house, totally reformed his life and repented of everything he had ever done that was wrong? Probably not. So Jesus is not there because He's totally stopped everything He was doing. He's there because He wants to follow Him. All of that stuff comes later as you grow. But notice this, His disciples were sitting there eating too. Here was my question. I wonder how many times those disciples had been to Matthew's house prior to this to eat. You think they were there because they wanted to be there? Or you think they were there because of Jesus? I'll tell you what I think. It don't mean anything, but I'm going to tell you anyway. I think they were following Jesus. And when they started to walk into Matthew's house with all these tax collectors and all these sinners sitting around, I think in their mind they were probably thinking, what in the world are you doing? We are going to catch some sinful disease as soon as we walk in this house. Look at all these sinners around here. But if Jesus is with us, He'll take care of us. He'll protect us. You know, we've got Christians today that act just like that. They're scared to death to get around people who know nothing about Christianity because they're afraid they might catch something. By the way, do you know who in life is most susceptible to germs? Babies. Babies. 
baby Christians are the ones most susceptible to being influenced. That's why it's so important we mature as Christians. Because we've got to reach these people. We've got to help these people. Baby Christians can't do it. Jesus went in with His disciples. He sat down. Notice what happens. I love these stories about Jesus. Because if you really look at them, some of them are kind of comical. Look at verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, and who are the Pharisees? The high and holy religious people. Could have been Baptists. When the Pharisees saw this, look at this. They asked His disciples, you a bunch of cowards, you a bunch of chickens, why don't you ask Jesus? Maybe they asked the disciples because they thought they might get a sympathetic ear. I mean, after all, the disciples had probably never been in there before anyway. They're probably thinking the same thing the Pharisees are. So they're asking the people who they think will agree with them, maybe. So they said, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, Jesus is going to answer this question, and it's critical for you and I as believers to know how we act and treat people who aren't Christians. Because that's the question. Why does he eat with them? Why does he associate with them? Why is he around them? Look at this, verse 12. On hearing this, Jesus said, the disciples did not say a word. They're asking the disciples, and Jesus spoke up. Now they're probably thinking, uh-oh, we are in trouble now. I mean, every other time they've asked him, he's pretty much let them have it. Here's what Jesus said. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. You see, the Pharisees, as religious as they were, they didn't even understand that statement. The healthy don't need a doctor. The people that are sick do. The people that have a sin problem, they haven't overcome yet. They're the ones that need the help. But the Pharisees didn't understand it. So he said, you need to go and learn what this means. And you know what he gives them? He gives them a quote right out of the part of the Bible they love. The Old Testament. This next phrase is a quote from Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6. Look at what it says. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I would rather have the attitude of your heart be that you don't give people what they deserve, but that you treat them with mercy, rather than that you do all your spiritual rituals to prove to me how spiritual you are. True spirituality is shown in the attitude of your heart toward others, not in what you do at church. By the way, do you know what the book of Hosea was all about? Hosea the prophet was told by God to go take Gomer a harlot to be his wife. Someone who did not deserve his love. And that's why he quoted a verse out of that book. That's what I want. I want a Hosea attitude toward these people. The tax collectors and the sinners. I want them to see mercy. How was it, Paul said, that you and I used to be dead, but now we're alive? Through His great love and His rich mercy. 
Do you know how we're going to make an impact on our community and this world, no matter what their problem is? We've got to learn how to humble ourselves and realize we're no better than they are. We've got to love them genuinely. And we've got to treat them, not how they deserve to be treated, but how Jesus treated us. I don't care what you've done. And you may be guilty. And you may not want to change. That does not give me a reason not to love you. And if I don't love you, you may never change. How do we treat people? First of all, be personally pure ourselves. Number two, be passionate about the people. And then finally, number three, pray for God to change their heart. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1-4 through 4, is the passage that talks about the God of this world has blinded their minds. The truth is, you and I can love them and be kind to them. We cannot change a person's heart. But let me ask you this. When you pray, when I pray, for God to change somebody's heart, do I mean it? Let me tell you how I sometimes measure whether or not my heart is hard or whether it's soft. And I really mean it. Have you ever prayed for somebody that was in a bad situation and while you were praying, you wept? You just wept. Because you loved them so much, your heart was broken. They're doing wrong. They don't want help. Matter of fact, they get mad at you and argue with you when you try and talk to them about it. How do we pray for them? If we weep, at least inside, if not outwardly. And tears of the heart are just as powerful as tears of the eyes. Then you pretty much know that's how God wants me to treat them. But if I pray like this, dear God, I pray fire from heaven will fall and burn every hair on their head and wake them up, God. That's not love and that's not mercy. Let me ask you, do you want God to do that to you when you do wrong? Not me. I want the hairs on my head. I don't want to get burned. Do unto others what you want them to do to you. Pray for God to help others the way you like for God to help you. And I promise you, if we have a group of Christians that will begin to live like this and treat people like this, it will change the world. But this is not easy, is it? It's a difficult thing to do. We need God's help as much as anybody. Okay. So, sexual crisis. Is there one? Yeah. But the real crisis is sin. And the answer to that is Christ. And we're the instruments through which He delivers the answer. We close with this. Matthew 5.16 Let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Father, thank You for loving us and for showing us mercy. Help us to love others 
the way Jesus loved us. And in doing so, use us as an instrument to bring salvation and victory to the lives of others as you have brought it to us. We love you. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name. Amen. See you, everybody.